Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Sam Sharp and Sydney Friedman. Sam and Sid work at the Fed Up Collective, an organisation fighting eating disorders in underrepresented populations. Sam is a transgender, intersex person who is passionate about science and communication, queering up the STEM field and biology and social justice. Sid identifies as transgender, non-binary and bisexual and is passionate about social and environmental justice, specifically advocating for LGBTQ communities and demonstrating the injustices in the US food and mental health systems. Sam and Sid join us today to discuss eating disorders in the trans, non-binary and intersex and queer community using their lived and research experience from the Fed Up Collective. Hello Sam and Sid! Hello. Hello. How are you both? Doing great. Good, good. How about yourself? Very early in the morning for you. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm here kind of lounging about mid-afternoon. But I'm really, I'm really appreciate you guys joining me and joining me so early. Um, I wanted to start um, by kind of getting to know you guys. So if you wanted to just kind of tell me a bit about yourselves um, and the work that you do, that would be, that'd be awesome. So I guess I'll start. Um, I'm Sid and I originally came from an art background, um, traditionally a film editor um, and then kind of started hearing more and more about Fed Up um, and really invested, um, now investing most of my life into the collective. Um, and it really came from, for me, a point of needing support. Um, and I found support within the collective and now um, sometimes I run the support group. So it's like a very great, it's been a really great transition for me. Yeah. Yeah, My name is Sam. My background is in biology. I'm actually still in graduate school doing a degree in evolutionary biology. And similar to Sid, I first found out about, um, fed up as a person looking for support and hearing about this really incredible resource. And um, I think the first uh, interaction I had was joining the Facebook a couple, Facebook group a couple years ago that Fed Up Collective has. And um, earlier this year, I was uh, asked to join as a team member. And yeah, so it's it's been cool to um, have found this collective through seeking support and now being able to be part of creating and providing that support for community. Amazing. It's really great, actually, how Sam joined us. We were doing a panel for a group in in Canada, and this was, I'm remembering this correct, yes. Sam, and you were like such a great presence on that panel as someone who um, was going to watch, and we immediately reached out <laughs> to you afterwards and like, was like, Sam, you need to join us. You're incredible. Like, your presence was absolutely needed on that panel and we're so glad that you were there and 
things form from there. Yeah. Amazing. That sounds great. It sounds like such a such a great community. Um, and I think the fact that you guys have, you know, both come from seeking to support seeking support to now like helping others is is just a brilliant kind of way to be. So you guys mentioned Fed Up and I mentioned it in the introduction. So what what is what is Fed Up? Yeah, I, I really like how you broke it down with the word the letters too and what fed up stands for because I, I think it's the double meaning of it is so fun. Like we are fed up and we are fighting eating disorders among underrepresented peoples. And um I think our vision is like um we have this on our website, but that we we envision representative research. So we have a team that um, is writing, and Sam will speak more on this, but is really into the research side of the eating disorder world. Um, we have, we're working in media visibility. Um, we're working in educating um, eating disorder professionals to be more intersectionally um, and gender literate. Um, and, um, we are working to like make treatment more financially available to our community and yeah. Amazing. That's, it sounds brilliant. Um, what you guys are doing, I think, yeah. I mean, when I first found you, I was like, I am getting them on the podcast. This is, this is happening. And now I've got so many people coming on the podcast, which is brilliant. So I guess before we speak about, um, the kind of work that you guys do, I'm really interested in you know, the research and the treatment side of things. Are you okay to just tell us a little bit about kind of your experience, your personal experiences with kind of eating and body image and, and why that made you sort of seek out support? Yeah, I, I'm trying to think like, for me, and, and this is something that we talk about. If if your if your body isn't at extremes, then you're often not being taken seriously or listened to. And that was my experience of um, going into the doctor's office and just not being heard. That I feel a certain way. Then finally, it didn't come until I was moving back to New York City that they're like telling me that there's not very many programs that are specified towards me, but there is this collective called the Fed Up Collective and they hold support groups. And now I know about our dietitian match program, which is something that is very near and dear to my heart. And I was matched with a dietitian and now I'm like on my stage to recovery but it it came from like trying to shake down the system for help and not getting anything um and often like you have to advocate for yourself but like what happens when you're at your low and advocating for yourself mm -hmm. is so hard you know so that's what I find so great about the collective is like we are the support. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that is one massive flaw that we have. Um, obviously, you know, you guys are under a different health system to what I am, but um, 
recently I've gone back to the doctor to seek support for myself and my doctor fortunately has been amazing um but the referral scheme here is self-referral and she took me seriously and everything and and when she said self-referral I was like well what's the point you know like you said I'm not I'm not at either extreme so you know is is anybody gonna actually take me seriously so the fact that you know you found somewhere that does take you seriously I think is is so important but I am also impressed that was it you that found fed up or did they kind of say to you you should go to they connected me that's pretty good yeah which I was at like a queer center okay okay so it wasn't Um, like a and so that was yeah yeah um and in a very queer town (laughs) um yeah so I had some things going for me (laughs) Yeah, so I think in some ways my story is kind of similar to Sid's. Um, This was something that I struggled with pretty much my entire life in different ways. But again, because I felt like, well, eating disorders, at the time I felt like eating disorders look a certain way and people who really have eating disorders have very extreme behaviors, very extreme presentations, and I'm struggling, but I'm kind of functioning. And I felt that way for years and then really during the um, COVID-19 pandemic there were a lot of things that happened in my life at the same time that um, sort of uh, caused me to go from struggling but doing okay to struggling and really not doing okay and I was able to connect with some resources at that time especially since a lot of support services that had previously been in person became virtual and I'm in like a pretty low population density area in like the middle of the United States um And so there's really not a whole lot of in-person support and definitely not a lot of in-person queer competent support. And it was sort of through the gateway of like being in these kind of drop-in virtual spaces where you don't have to even like be able to say, oh, I I identify as having an eating disorder. You're just there because you're struggling and sort of hearing Mm -hmm. what other people were going through. I started to realize, okay, in a lot of ways, I am having these same struggles as people who um, do consider themselves to have an eating disorder and are actively seeking treatment. And I was able to get certain types of help where I am. But um, when I was trying to get sort of a, an additional level of help, which and the whole system of that, like you said, is really different from the US and the UK, mm-hmm. but um, just realizing like, this is a lot of work to find something that's going to be available, um, figuring it out in terms of insurance and financially and time and space. Um, all those things felt really complicated. And then a lot of treatment that's available is really focused on this idea of like, well, you must be having an eating disorder for a very specific set of reasons, often mm-hmm. to do with like things that people assume about like young, thin, rich, white women and anybody who's not part of that demographic um, and who's eating disorder involves other components, whether they have to do with um, a trans identity or eating disorders that are more driven by um, uh, coping with other types of struggles and eating disorders that have to do with more of your um, sensory profile and sensory differences. There's not really understanding and support for that. And um, yeah, I guess I had found fed up several years before that. Um, So I must have at least been thinking like, maybe this is a problem I'm interfacing with enough to Mm -hmm. um, be in sort of online spaces where that information would get conveyed to me. But um, yeah, I feel like what my lived experience has sort of taught for me the most is um, how many different ways this can look and how in some cases it can 
present as something that's either completely invisible to other people or is actually praised because a certain level of like performative and obsessive supposedly health-seeking behaviors, even if they're incredibly unhealthy, can be seen as something that is admired and encouraged by other people. Um, which is a huge part of the problem. And so I guess part of um, what I am trying to do in my capacity of, of working in eating disorder advocacy is challenging those ideas about like um, how you need to look or be behaving to mm. basically consider yourself to have a problem and to, to deserve help. And also um, not having a singular narrative about eating disorders. I don't think there's any universal narrative about eating disorders and we can really run into trouble when even as like um, folks who are in recovery trying to support each other, we're really pushing a certain narrative and demonizing others. Yeah. So I just wanted to say like the concept that Sam is mentioning is, is passing and how important passing is in the trans and intersex world to, to pass a certain way for safety. And I totally forgot uh, another huge part, which is accessibility, um, which Sam also mentioned, where it's different uh, in, in the UK and in Europe. But here, in, insurance is really is very tricky. And in an intake, if you were, for me, like I was deemed needed, like the highest level of care that an ED, um, like, service could offer and they weren't willing to budge because I wasn't able to pay the amount that they needed me to pay. So instead I've been ghosted for almost a year now from this particular place. And like, um, it's just like, there's no harm reduction love like services. There are, if you need the highest level of care, you need the highest level of care and you're not allowed into the lower levels because of where you're at. Um, and that was uh, another experience that I had and which led me more into set up. So even if you're, so uh, sorry, is what you're saying that, you know, if you need a high level of care, but you can't afford it, you're not able to kind of come down to that lower level that I assume is kind of less expensive because you need that higher level. So you just end up with nothing. I was going to provide a little bit more information about mm -hmm. that because um, I don't agree with it, but I guess I've also um, had had situations where I was sort of given the, the same explanation because there's basically this idea that um, it's unethical for providers to treat you at a level of care that they deem to be below what you need because if something happens to you and they were allowing you to be in that level of mm -hmm. care when they thought that your behavioral risk or your medical need uh, needed more care, then that is um, basically a, an insurance and professional liability for them. And so totally. the way that the code of ethics is written, a lot of providers conclude it is safer for me to not work with this person at all and to completely deny them care and say it's their fault for refusing, quote unquote, refusing mm -hmm. care if they can't afford it, if they have children, if they can't not work and even don't have the time, even if they had the money. Um, to do it, it's it's more ethical for them to sort of walk away from that situation than try and provide some level of, as Sid said, harm reduction care that might be less mm -hmm. intensive than what it's believed that person needs, but would still be something and could still improve their quality of life and make them feel safer and more supported. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, from a 
from their standpoint, you know, that makes sense. But equally, you know, they, there's got to be some fallback for those people that can't afford it, which again, costs more money, needs more funding. So it's, I suppose, a really difficult thing to navigate. And I'm sure, you know, it's obviously not similar in the UK, but um, because we, you know, our, our healthcare, um, we don't have to pay for, well, apart from a few taxes, but, um, you know, if you're not sort of at the higher end of risk, then you are pushed down the waiting list so you don't have any care. And it's a similar thing here in that we kind of don't have anything to bridge that gap between people, you know, being able to get the care, whether it's because of finance like you guys or because of times, um, or, uh, but yeah, oh, and then actually when they're receiving care. Um, do you think there are any other sort of injustices in the sort of mental health eating disorder treatment areas? So is that are more specific to kind of, you know, trans, non-binary and intersex? Okay, yeah, there's definitely a lot of other injustices. I think all of the injustices that exist in society are present in the um, field and the availability of mental health care, and some of them are really magnified and so I guess an example would be um, the highest levels of uh, eating disorder care in the United States would be uh, inpatient care, which is in a hospital and residential care, which is also 24 hours a day, but it's in sort of a um, non-hospital facility. And because those are built environments, um, the presence of um, systemic or no, the presence of structural oppression, so the oppression of the built environment is really um, present for people who, for example, um, are not able to use a men's or a women's bathroom facility. Mm -hmm. So if you are a um, non-binary trans intersex person, um, any of those uh, categories who is not able to safely use a men's or women's bathroom and you're in a hospital or a treatment facility that only has men's or women's bathrooms, then figuring out how to safely use the bathroom mm -hmm. during treatment is going to be a problem. and. For some people, that would be enough of a deterrent to not get help if they're going to have to make that decision every day, multiple times a day, and the facility doesn't have an accommodating solution, um, or if they, if the solution they offer is even more invalidating. And um, with uh, disability, similarly, if you're in um, a facility that's not wheelchair accessible or is not accessible to you in some other way, including if you have um, sensory sensitivity to bright lights and loud noises and there's not an option to say like eat your meals in a place where you can wear headphones and the lights aren't going to be really fluorescent and glaring that can be a barrier to um, being able to get care in that situation and additionally um, for trans and non-binary and intersex people there's always um, the pot potential for additional experiences of injustice and oppression with the training of the um, professionals and staff at the facility. Like, are they trans competent? Are they going to be able to use your correct name if that's not your legal name? Are they going to call you the wrong pronouns constantly? Are they going to invalidate your experience of gender in all of these different ways that can come up, especially around medical things? And um, some people, I guess, including me, get told things around like, well, we know you're like trans, but in order for you to recover, your body has to do these things. And that can come across as really invalidating and actually disincentivize recovery. And there's, mm -hmm. in some cases, a lot of tension with people 
needing certain types of gender affirming medical care, but maybe providers aren't willing to accommodate that because they think it's risky for somebody who's medically compromised because of their eating disorder, because they don't think it's important or because they think, okay, we can. And I've seen both of these things um, either will help you recover from your eating disorder. And after that, you can do gender affirming care, not realizing that gender affirming care is essential to that process. And sometimes it's really the other extreme where it's like, okay, well, if we set you up with the gender affirming care you need, you won't need to have an eating disorder before. And that will like function as treatment, which is also not true because even if your entire eating disorder originated for gender related reasons, it's not that easy to just entirely stop a coping mechanism you've been relying on, even if what you originally thought was the problem is gone because of the way that those things actually rewire your brain and the way that um, mm -hmm. habits are, are difficult to break. And additionally, the way that something like an eating disorder can really change over time for an individual, both in terms of maybe you started out doing one type of eating disorder behavior and then it became something else later, or maybe you originally um, started relying on it as a coping mechanism for a specific problem, but then it became intertwined with all these other aspects of your lives. Mm. Um, so I think just the both um, injustice based on uh, the way that people in treatment settings will respond to you based on the physical settings themselves and also the sort of ideology around what an eating disorder is and why people get them and why specifically trans and intersex people would get them. I think those are all um, occasions at which injustice occurs in the system that we have. Totally. I think Sam like, hit every point that <laughs> I could think of. And I, I think that's what brings a lot of folks to fed up to our website because we have a scorecard for treatment centers mm -hmm. of, of the ones that we know of. And, you know, we're always looking to grow, but um, of like, you know, what is the sleeping arrangement like? What are the bathroom situations? Are the specialists there, do they call you by your name? Like, do they respect your pronouns um, and things like that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds really important. And it's almost when you said scorecard initially, my kind of brain went to um, in the UK. I don't know whether you guys have this. You might already. Um, we have BEAT, the organization, have this thing that you can take to your GP and you like tick off like, this is the symptoms I'm having and this is what you need to know sort of thing um and I almost feel like something like that might be good um you know if somebody isn't informed in this um you know in trans and intersex and non-binary then to be able to say like you know this is what I respectfully want from you I feel like could be useful as well to because you know things like you said like the sleeping arrangements or the bathrooms and things like that I think a lot of people that they wouldn't even cross their mind that would completely go over their head but then for the individual trying to access treatment like you said that could be such a big barrier of access that may not even be considered we're we're actually we just had a meeting with beat so oh, amazing <laughs> oh that's brilliant well i'm glad i said it because clearly great minds think alike i also <laughs> just wanted to comment sam on your point about you know kind of saying like well you know if if we do the gender affirming then you won't need the eating disorder anymore and i just i find that really shocking because you know people get eating disorders for a number of reasons we know that there's no one reason but you know whether it's something that happened in your childhood or something that's going on right now 
we're very aware that it doesn't have to be happening right now for you to engage in the eating disorder. It can be, you know, something that's happened previously or whatever. So to simply say to somebody, okay, well, if we provide that, then the eating disorder is going to go. Like you said, it's it's a coping mechanism that you've become to rely on. And I think a lot of the time, you know, something may happen and people develop an eating disorder in response to that's not always how it goes but it then becomes your coping mechanism so then whenever anything happens in life that's the thing that you turn to so I, I feel like that's yeah why that why that kind of transition in kind of thought process changes um just for that it, I find really bizarre yeah I find it really bizarre as well and it kind of seems like it's one extreme or the other from a lot of clinicians, like either they have no ability to engage with the way that being trans or your gender identity or your intersex experience might have to do with an eating disorder. And they sort of treat it from this like more, um, I guess, stereotypical idea of like, oh, well, you must uh, want to not grow up or you must want to look like a supermodel or whatever people think um, is sort of the, the default narrative about eating disorders. And it seems like if people have like a little bit of knowledge about um, the intersection of eating disorders and uh, trans identity, then they sort of go to the other extreme of like, oh, well, this must be the entire reason mm -hmm. and the entire solution. And I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's just sort of the lack of, of nuance when people don't know a whole lot about a population. And it's, it, it seems like it makes a very simple sort of logic, like you don't like your body, so you want to try and suppress certain traits so you're using an eating disorder for that. And there must not be any other features to it. And mm -hmm. I think that sometimes um, as uh, people in an oppressed population, we fall into this trap of trying to explain ourselves in the most simplistic way possible because we feel like we need to represent our entire community and there's not room for, for nuance when we're communicating that. Um, and that's definitely something that I struggle with because I have aspects of my experience that are uh, not representative of the community. And so I'm always um, unsure of whether it's a good idea to share those things because I never want somebody to say, well, Sam said this, so I'm going to like use that to either make assumptions about all other trans and intersex people, or I'm going to deny certain other possibilities of narratives because that contradicts what Sam said. And um, that's, yeah, that's not how people work. Like we're, we're, we're all unique in different ways, mm -hmm. but trying to figure out how to communicate that is um, always an interesting challenge because we want people to be there and hold space for the nuance and hold space for the contradictions. But it's difficult when coming from a disempowered place to communicate that. And sometimes it feels like um, people who have, are in a more privileged position, both in terms of identities and people who have power, like doctors and, and therapists and people who work in eating disorder treatment, they don't always have the um, attention span to really sit down and make mistakes and recover from mistakes and really expand their learning to have a, a better competency around working with um, underrepresented populations um, dealing with eating disorders. On sort of the kind of topic of um, like working with underrepresented populations. So um, when you're sort of thinking about your like ideal kind of doctor or person that would be working with you, would 
do you think that it would be essential that they themselves are trans and sex non-binary or do you think having sort of an awareness and having that training would be enough to provide like the appropriate level of support that would be sort of required? Yeah, this is definitely a question that we talk about a lot, you know, like should all of our providers be trans and intersex? I am of the belief that it's better for a diverse brains to come together because there could be something that a cis person is seeing of my experience that I'm not. And I am open to listening to that. And I think that is really important to not separate and to have the training for our cis providers. Sam, I know we've talked about this and I know I'm forgetting something. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting question, both about like provider identity and provider lived experience. And I think the way that we're um, educating people around this does need to be rooted in lived experience um, because, yeah, sorry, I have so many thoughts about this because a lot of eating disorder treatment in the United States isn't even evidence-based. It's just sort of based on like the person who founded a specific treatment center had a specific philosophy. So that's how treatment is done there which is a whole thing but in some cases like people will be saying well we're using evidence-based practices and like having research on what has better or worse outcomes is really important but when you have populations like trans people intersex people people of color who are dealing with eating disorders the research is not done on us like the research has been done on like a very specific demographic so something that produces the best outcome in like middle and upper class white teenagers who have full family support is not necessarily going to produce the best outcome in adults who are trans, intersex, and or people of color who um, are on Medicaid, which is like the state insurance here that grants you access to many fewer options and many fewer levels of care and doesn't necessarily guarantee that you have safe housing and access to food when you get discharged from treatments. Like that's going to potentially produce a really different outcome, even if you're doing the supposedly gold standard type of intervention. So understanding all of those things, I think, is really critical. And I guess um, because of where I live, I don't really have the option for the most part to work with providers who share my identities. And I found some really amazing providers who um, are really just sort of like students of their profession and able to have a collaborative, like mutually educational relationship with their clients. And that's been huge. And I think until there's more accessibility to having people from underrepresented populations in those fields, like people uh, who are dietitians and therapists and doctors who are able to be open about having lived experience and who also um, are part of, of these groups, then it's not necessarily going to be available to everyone to have Uh, providers who have the same identities and so there is going to be a need to train people but yeah just sort of increasing representation is huge because I know for some people it really is essential to have a provider who shares at least one key aspect of their lived experience additionally if the entire field is is kind of homogenous then that's not going to put pressure on anyone and that's also not going to shape like we were talking about before the this code of ethics that a lot of these eating disorder professionals have to follow if that was written by people who had dealt with trying to get care while in a financially disadvantaged place that might look very different and there might be more understanding of harm reduction and stop gaps to fill in for people who are not able to completely leave their lives for however long to get um, inpatient or residential care, but understanding that 
even if um, this sort of full-time abstinence-based model of recovery is not accessible to you, you're not ready for it, you still deserve harm reduction and you still deserve care. And so I, I think having people of all different identities and especially ones that have been traditionally represented and continue to be oppressed in the field is essential. But I guess personally, I don't think the only people who can provide competent eating disorder care are people who've had eating disorder lived experience or necessarily having a one-to-one -one shared identity with clients. And of course there's um, issues of intersectionality around identity um, and potentially what's gonna be the most salient identity for one person might not be for somebody else. Um, so for instance, uh, uh, somebody with an eating disorder who's a non-binary person of color, like working with a white non-binary clinician might be much less helpful than working with a cis man or woman who shares their racial or ethnic identity. And that might look different for different people. And, and just to add to what Sam was saying is the importance of peer work and peer support. If you are in an area where you don't have access to providers who share your experience or because of, and I know this is true for therapists is a lot of times in the field, you can't be forthcoming with your lived experience because of how the field is set up. But in peer work, we can sit in a space and all know that we are, we have lived experience set up has many different peer groups. We have a general peer group. We have a BIPOC peer group. We, we have a group for supporters of trans and intersex folks going through eating disorders, disordered eating, like, and, and we're looking to expand upon that. But those are, I think that's where community can be found. I think you raised a really good point there in terms of like the clinical side of it. I think, like you said, they, they can't always disclose their, their, their personal experience. Um, so that I guess would be difficult. But I think, like you said, the peer support where you can be open and honest and, you know, really develop those relationships with people that are going through similar things as you so that you don't feel so alone. I think can be really important so um kind of having a mix of both so you know if, if like you said if you're not able to kind of speak to your clinician about um the personal things to them but you you know you feel that they're supporting you brilliant and then you can have that sort of community aspect um to talk to other people about what's going on i think would be a great balance to a good recovery for you i just wanted to ask this might be me being really naive about how it works in the US. Um, but is it basically just if you can't afford it in terms of treatment, then you don't get it? Yeah, I would say in general, yes. But um, I guess just sort of briefly, some people in the United States don't have health care insurance at all. Some people have insurance through the state. Um, which they don't pay for, but offers fewer services. And some people have private or commercial insurance, which you pay to have and you get more access to services, but every insurance plan is different and it's always really complicated. And sometimes your insurance says, yes, we will cover the service, but they'll only cover part of it or they'll only cover a certain type of it and they'll be very vague about it. And they might decide at a random time that they think that you don't need it anymore. So 
that is sort of a really difficult game um, that people who have the privilege of having insurance still have to play. And so I guess if you're trying to get um, eating disorder care, it um, you, your insurance may or may not provide coverage for it, both because of what your insurance decides is important. Like your insurance might say you can only get nutrition counseling if you have diabetes and otherwise um, we're not going to pay for it even if you have insurance and your insurance might say uh, we'll cover eating disorder treatment, but only in person. And so if you're in an area where in person's not available and you could get virtual treatment, but your insurance won't cover it, um, then you might not be able to get it. And for people who either don't have insurance, don't have the money to pay without insurance, which is, I cannot describe how expensive it is to pay for like higher levels of eating disorder care in the United States without insurance is kind of unfathomably expensive. Um, so if you don't have any of those things, there are some organizations that can provide scholarships and some treatment centers provide scholarships and some providers will do sliding scale. So it's not necessarily like if you don't have the money 100% of the time, you can't get care. But the resources that are trying to fill that gap are really, really stretched. And the amount of need versus the amount of availability is a complete mismatch. So in most cases, um, if you can't afford it, you can't get those types of care. And um, as with what Sid was saying, there there are free resources. There are ways to get um, sort of um, free support groups or, or peer support. But in terms of like seeing a dietitian, a therapist, an eating disorder specialized doctor, or um, like a residential or partially partially residential type of treatment, yeah, those things tend to be a lot more inaccessible for people who can't pay or don't have insurance coverage. Gosh. Yeah, and I don't know how on topic this is, but I think there is something that we're missing here, or just a missing piece is that like Sam and I both live in the U.S. and so our background, our our background knowledge is on the U.S. system, but FedUp works internationally, mm -hmm. so we have clients that come to us from all over the world, and so we are learning and 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 doing our best to understand what programs are in different countries but yeah our our knowledge right now our lived experience is in the u.s yeah and like i mean i can imagine that all over the world it's kind of very different as in how easily accessible treatment is um you know i think in some parts of the world eating disorders maybe there's barely any awareness about them so to access treatment I can imagine is very difficult um, for something that's maybe not known about um, but yeah thank you for kind of educating me there on how it works and in, in it's probably something I should know about doing this podcast um, but it is interesting to hear about sort of how it kind of plays out differently Another thing I wanted to ask you guys about is you kind of mentioned at the start that um, FedUp does a lot of research. So I wanted to ask you about kind of what you've seen um, or what research you've done about eating disorders in um, the trans, non-binary and intersex community. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, that's something that is really important to FedUp. And um, I um, am part of our sort of like sub team that is working on research and so some of the members of the collective um, are academically involved with the eating disorder field and have collaborated on papers about that sort of uh, as representatives of fed up but really based on their own um, background and capacity in doing that 
and we don't really have the um, infrastructure right now to do our own sort of um, original empirical research, but we um, are open to collaborations with teams that are working on research um, regarding eating disorders in trans, intersex, and non-binary communities. And um, something that we do a lot is communicate with folks who are doing that type of research and want help getting their information about their research out to trans and intersex populations. So we have a lot of people contact us about that. Um, and one thing that we're working on is a set of guidelines for best practices in doing that types of research because um, your research on a population is only as um, thorough as your ability to reach that population mm -hmm. and actually effectively communicate what you want to know because sometimes um, people will write surveys for uh, trans, intersex, and non-binary communities and ask questions in a really invalidating way that will make people just not want to fill out your survey or not want to mm -hmm. talk to you or see your flyer and decide that's something they don't want to be a part of. And a lot of times, um, that can be pretty easily fixed if you know how to ask the questions better. And so we're just trying to highlight that in our um, research guidelines and hopefully that will be something that improves the quality of research that's being done. Um, and the research that exists that we're aware of um, compared to uh, cisgender women, there's been much less study of trans and non-binary populations with eating disorders, but the study we do have does show much higher rates um, in trans and non-binary populations, including mm -hmm. like uh, trans men, trans women, and trans people who don't identify entirely or at all as men or women, and that's been um, pretty consistent. But understanding what kind of interventions are actually helpful is definitely understudied, and there's almost no and maybe none at all, like really research on uh, eating disorders in intersex populations. Like intersex populations are generally generally understudied for anything other than um, about us being intersex. It's mm -hmm. really just about like how to inter intersex people use language about themselves, how to intersex people respond to certain types of medical interventions related to intersex variations. And um, there's not a whole lot of looking at like the different um, other types of mental health and, and social factors. So we're hoping to encourage that type of in inclusion as well. And basically from my observations, being in intersex communities, there's incredibly high rates of eating disorders and disordered eating for a variety of reasons. And I think that's important to be aware of and um, just important for clinicians who work with trans or intersex people in any capacity to always screen for eating disorders and not just like, oh, is your BMI under this level, but to actually ask questions about like, are you engaging in these behaviors? How do you feel about your relationship with food in your body? Is this a cause of distress for you? Um, and it's hard to um, get those things implemented if there's not research to back it up and if there aren't avenues of communication from people with lived experience to those um, clinicians who are making mm -hmm. those decisions. You've mentioned that about there kind of being a variety of reasons why there was a higher rate of eating disorders and obviously I don't just want to do like a brush stroke you know these are the reasons because I'm sure for everybody it's different but are there some that are more common maybe for or do you have like thoughts behind why the rate of eating disorders is higher? I was just going to bring up the term um, 
about minority oppression or minority stress and how the world impacts those individuals. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, there's a variety of different reasons, including um, just people who experience high levels of oppression often um, have uh, negative mental health consequences from that. And additionally, um, with, I guess, higher levels of oppression tend to come lower levels of um, security in terms of things like housing, money, access to healthcare, um, food insecurity is a huge contributor to eating disorders and there's high rates of um, unemployment and food insecurity in trans populations. Um, there's also what we sort of talked about before, like this often feeling of powerlessness to um, make your body something that you can live in. And for some people, um, it, it eating disorders do sort of serve a functional role either to directly try and affect uh, the, the shape and size of your body in a way that you hope will be gender affirming or just feeling like I can't get access to the medical care I need and um, controlling my body in this way, even if it's maladaptive is, is providing a really important um, coping mechanism. And um, for both trans people, but really especially intersex people, there's really high levels of medical trauma. Um, a lot of intersex people have kind of a lot of medical trauma beginning in really early childhood because of different um, surgical and medical interventions that are meant to make people basically not look intersex. Um, a lot of times uh, the interventions are entirely cosmetic. And so having repeated experiences of just having um, your body literally invaded by these uh, procedures and by being sort of um, subject to so much scrutiny by sometimes multiple doctors and medical students and people who want to learn from the way that you look and the way that your body functions, um, those types of uh, trauma and medical trauma can be a, a big contributor to eating disorders as well. And um, then, of course, there's like uh, completely unrelated factors that contribute to, to eating disorders, like um, experiencing like weight-based bullying or discrimination, especially in childhood or from parents and coping with other types of unrelated stress and um, uh, just the, yeah, other types of eating disorders that aren't directly about body image, like avoidant restrictive food Our intake food. disorder, which um, is for a lot of people um, more based in sort of like uh, fear around either the sort of interoceptive aspects of food, like how does it feel for you to digest food? Are you scared of choking or um, just uh, sensory discomforts around food? And um, ARFID can also be caused by trauma and people sometimes don't make that connection because mm -hmm. it's not necessarily always expressed in a way that maps onto traditional ideas about eating disorders and body image. Mm -hmm. Do you see quite a lot of ARFID in trans, intersex and, and non-binary individuals? Anecdotally, yes. We I don't know if there's research <laughs> on that, but um, yeah, it mm -hmm. seems like there's a pretty high prevalence. I would say anecdotally, like if you took a anonymous poll of our collective, you'd see neurodiversity and within that same category, ARFID um, also connects. And that's, uh, we see that in, in our collective, we see that in our support groups. ARFID is definitely something that is commonly talked about. That's interesting. Do you think it's the sort of 
the trauma related obviously like just going off kind of your views because you said that there's not much research on this but it's quite interesting that that's I mean that's not what I kind of expected I I didn't, I don't know what I kind of expected to be a common eating disorder, but I think ARFID, because you don't hear about ARFID very much, um, maybe that is kind of part of the problem. Yeah, I think it's a lot more common than many people think, but there's this idea that like, it only shows up in young children who have always had a very limited palate and who don't experience co-occurring body image issues. Sometimes I am the actual definition of ARFID is like, you don't have body image issues, which I think is kind of wild given like most people who don't have eating disorders have body image mm -hmm. issues. Like it's very hard to, to grow up in a society that has really, really extreme ideas about which bodies are attractive and worthy of love and care and not develop those kinds of issues, even if you don't have a clinically diagnosable eating disorder. And so I think those ideas about ARFID uh, contribute to people's just sort of not seeing it when it's very present. So I think across the board, there's more of it than most folks think. And it can co-occur with other types of eating disorders. And it can occur in adults. It can occur in adults who had it their whole lives and it just never got diagnosed. And it can also develop later in life. And it can definitely occur in people who also have body image issues in general or who even also have like a body image-based eating disorder, like you can simultaneously have anorexia nervosa and ARFID. And it, it really has to do with like, what is the um, anxiety or what is the maladaptive um, relationship with food that's occurring? And if that is something that's primarily based in either um, sensory aspects of food and eating, lack of interest in food and eating, or fear of an immediate averse outcome, basically, of food and eating as opposed to like, oh, I don't want to eat this because that will like cause my body to change in this way. It's often like, I don't want to eat this because I think I'm going to have a stomach ache or I think I'm going to choke or I think I've spontaneously developed an allergy. And it's possible to have all of those fears at the same time. And so understanding like, okay, we need to address these co-occurring fears through sort of different frameworks in order to get that person to a place where this is not a huge source of stress, where this is not something that is um, being utilized as a maladaptive coping mechanism is something that I think is crucial and, and really missing in a lot of care. And especially when there's this really aggressive narrative about like trans people have eating disorders because of their gender things and because of the way they want to um, affect their gender presentation, then those other aspects are really easy to overlook because they don't fit that more simplistic narrative. I think also when you were talking about sort of ARFID being underrepresented, my kind of thought around that people always seem to link ARFID to being neurodiverse. And I think it's almost something we've latched onto to be like, yes, ARFID is the eating disorder that occurs in people that are neurodiverse. But my way of thinking about it might be a bit, I mean, I don't have research based on this, which is part of the problem, but I always think when someone is displaying the signs of being neurodiverse, they might go to their GP to gain support from it. But when we think about ARFID, most people just think about it as like picky eating, and I'm doing quote marks here. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily go to the doctor for that. So my thought is that actually a lot more people have ARFID than we're aware of, but because you're seeking the diagnosis already for the neurodiversity, you're already going to the doctor, so then it might be picked up. But because you wouldn't go for picky eating without anything else, you're not going to the GP. So I completely agree. I think ARFID is a lot more prevalent than we actually realize um, and I'm not a fan of the research being about you know ARFID and autism, ARFID and ADHD always combining it with something because I think it 
it might kind of put people off for seeking help because they think, well, I'm not neurodiverse. Yeah, I think that's another thing is that a lot of people are neurodiverse and don't realize it because mm. they didn't present in a stereotypical way or mm -hmm. because they're part of a demographic that's not traditionally diagnosed. I can't speak for the UK, but in the US, it really seems like the criteria we have for autism is really based on like how our young white boys with autism presenting in distress yeah. and people who aren't distressed and people who aren't young white boys tend to really be overlooked and not realize that that is something that they're experiencing, especially if they are um, sort of good at masking. And um, I think, oh yeah, something else I wanted to say is like having sensory differences, having very strong sensory preferences, even having like limit, a limited palate can is, is often very much associated with um, neurodiversity and those things aren't always ARFID and they're not necessarily maladaptive because mm -hmm. I guess my perspective is like if you don't eat in ways that other people consider normal, but you're not incur incurring nutritional deficiencies because of how you're eating and there are foods that you like and you're not, you don't feel like your life is being disrupted by eating differently, having fewer preferred foods than most people, then I don't think that that should be considered um, an eating disorder, even if other people think it's weird because it's really about like, are you getting your nutritional needs met and are you in distress? And if those things like are not issues then I don't think that needs to be diagnosed yeah definitely more of the overall impact on what's going on for you in your life and how much is it impacting you rather than hmm you can you tick these few boxes therefore we think that you've got an issue so kind of just my kind of final question for you as we were talking about like um preconceptions and, and things like that do you think that there are any preconceptions in society as to how eating disorders might present in the trans, non-binary and intersex community and kind of do they add up or are they just complete rubbish? The, the one thing that pops in my head is that to pass, as we previously mentioned, uh, as trans masculine, a lot of folks will restrict from eating so that it's their first line of defense pass where folks who are feminizing will maybe binge to see the effects of curves and this is a huge stigma i think to ignore the folks in between who may be struggling but it's not as apparent and, and do you yeah. see that kind of play out i've seen it in research i've seen it talk in like talk amongst trans folks I've seen it as like a personal experience of, of me not getting care. I've seen it as a, an experience of my peers. And as Sam has been talking about, it's not always connected, but for some folks, it, it very much is. For some folks, it very much plays into like, I need to pass for my safety and this is how I'm going to pass. Uh, so for some folks, it's very real and for some it's not. And I think that the need to like call it a, a stigma is very true of like, this is something that is real for folks, but it's not for everybody. Um, and therefore the folks in the middle have to be taken seriously. Yeah. I just, I, I think I find it really upsetting the fact that if somebody does transition, there's that sort of pressure or sort of that 
feeling that they have to fit meet a certain criteria again this is probably me being very naive but you know I would have hoped that if somebody transitions then they can be in the body that they want to be and they don't feel like they have to fit those sort of gender norms or whatever but I you know I it's horrible that we live in a society where that's not possible and you can't kind of have that body that you want um you do have to still fit the kind of categories which yeah I, I think that's just that's very sad totally. totally I think something that we don't often think about well I think in the trans and intersex community non-binary community we think about this a lot but is not something that is wider thought about is gender affirming surgery can often be denied uh, to folks who are to a certain BMI bull. <laughs> and that is also something that we're like looking at and set up is like making a, a chart of like which surgeons will perform uh, gender affirming surgery regardless of your BMI. Um, and that becomes a huge barrier in all of this as well. Yeah. What's their reasoning behind why they won't do the surgery? Cosmetically, some folks, uh, some surgeons are really afraid of doing work that isn't perfect, maybe. Another reasoning they may have is on anesthesia. Yeah, maybe an issue, but I think it's so stigmatized within the medical world that a lot of providers are unwilling to actually learn about that it doesn't matter, that BMI doesn't matter. I could go on and on about BMI, <laughs> but I... I think it's a combination of sort of like the more widespread medical anti-fat bias that's this idea that like, well, we can't do surgery on fat people unless we're doing weight loss surgery like if you're mm -hmm. above a certain bmi you can't get gender affirming surgery you can't get a knee replacement but they will um make your stomach smaller with with the goal of of, of making you thinner so the idea that that surgery can't be accessible is is um really hypocritical but in a lot of cases there there isn't the training um for the surgical team to provide surgery to uh, people in larger bodies because that's not prioritized in medical schools or the equipment has not been uh, purchased. But as Sid said, in some cases, like doctors, it, it's straight up. They they want their portfolio to have a certain aesthetic. And if they don't think your body after gender-affirming surgery will fit that aesthetic, then they won't do it, um, which is really terrible. And just as like a completely cynical kind of response to that, but they're actually missing a trick because if they became the specialist that did the surgery in larger bodies, you know, there's a specialism that other people aren't looking at. So, you know, they're actually completely foolish in my eyes. It's just a slightly probably twisted way of looking at it. Um, but there we go. Yeah, I think like you guys have said, there just needs to that awareness to be built, that training to be implemented. I think it's really lacking and it's, it, you know, it's sad to hear how, how lacking it is. I guess just to finish, from your perspective, um, whether we're thinking about like, you know, family support or clinician support, anything like that, what would be like your number one kind of thing that you'd like to see going forward in the future to be the thing that changes? Um, I think I have two main things that I think really need to change. Um, I think that uh, the financial barriers to getting treatment like are so critical to address because people die because they are waiting to get 
care that's affordable to them or um, people develop lifelong medical complications because they couldn't get early intervention. Um, and oftentimes that's because of financial barriers. And that's just like, I, I think probably the number one thing across demographics that's preventing people from getting care in the United States. And I think the other main thing that um, is necessary is like really looking at uh, individualized care rather than these one fits yeah. one size fits all approaches, which are things that a lot of people encounter that are like not only um, really focused on a single idea of recovery that's like demands abstinence from all behaviors. And in some cases, without even investigating, like, why are you doing this? Why do you feel like it's necessary? Can we either find a different way for you to cope with this thing? Or is there mm -hmm. a problem we can solve and eliminate the need for that? Um, and also just like providing care that's culturally responsive to um, a person's entire identity, whether that is uh, gender identity, race and ethnicity, disability, religion, um, and other factors that might be um, contributing to the eating disorder and that also feel necessary for having a meaningful life while doing harm reduction or with the possibility of recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant points. Definitely, definitely patient-led care. Mm. That's, that's definitely number one. I would also add, I want to see research uh, on trans intersex non-binary folks i want i want i want to see there's not there's not much to any research done um and it makes me personally feel like lost in the dark when i can read research i can see like what fits for me and is my care team aware of what I'm going through and is the care that I'm receiving going, is, is it, it's something that helps me logically think, is this working? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think undoubtedly, you know, all the things that you've said, research, financial support and individualized treatment, I think it's so important um, across the board of eating disorders, but specifically, um, you know, with trans, non-binary and intersex, you know, like you guys said, the research is just so minimal. And how can we treat somebody if we don't know? Um, obviously, it's going to depend for different people what's the most beneficial, which is why kind of the patient-led care is so important. But, you know, if we've not even got a slight understanding of what's helpful, then how can we? Um, but thank you so much for joining me. I've so enjoyed this chat with you guys. It's been amazing. Um, if thank you. If people are listening and interested about finding more about Fed Up, maybe reaching out for support, where can they go to find you guys? Yeah, our website is um, fedupcollective.org. Um, we also have an Instagram and Facebook. Um, set up collective yeah i wanted to add one more thing quickly as uh, given how to find us i think something that maybe we didn't talk about enough is that it's really important to fed up to provide sort of tangible resources as opposed to just um sort of spreading awareness and we have a variety of things that are um available some of them are available to everyone some of them are just for um uh, trans and intersex community and some of them are just for um trans and intersex 
people of color, but um, the scorecard is available to um, everyone to be viewed. And we have these different resources. We have the dietitian, dietitian match program that Sid mentioned, which um, is available to trans and intersex people who are looking for a dietitian. And um, most of the providers we work with are in the US, but if you're outside of the US, um, we'll do our, our best to connect you with someone. We also have these um, support groups every month and you can find schedules for that on Instagram. And we also have um, uh, funding available for, um, Sid, am I correct in that it's funding available to trans people of color for groceries? Um, I believe so. Yeah. We also have the the Facebook group for that provides like peer support and community for trans and intersex people. And there's some other things that we are working on, which will hopefully be available soon. Wow. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ben. You're doing so much. It's absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, keep up the good work because it's, yeah, it's just fantastic what you guys are doing and so needed. So well done to you. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks for thank having us. Thank you so us. much for having us on. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.